As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bible to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Continuing our Taste and See series where we're focusing in on the goodness of God. And man, it really was um, just the, uh, an awareness of the presence of God during worship. It's not something to ever take for granted that, that God inhabits the praise of his people. And there's one thing when you're worshiping in your car, and there's another thing when you're worshiping with all the voices around you that your soul is built up and edified. And that's one of the main reasons that we're gathered. Um, seriously, um, if the presence of God is not here, like we really should all go play golf. I mean, there, there's lots of other things that you could be doing on a Sunday morning. Um, this isn't out of habit. This isn't out of duty. This is about God manifesting himself. And um, I'm just so encouraged by the way that God has done that consistently in this season. I'm convinced that's what he wants to do this morning. I want to begin um, just with the idea that I, I remember um, there, there was a season where I was particularly fascinated um, by military special forces. So um, all the ladies, please pardon me while I use this illustration. But this is, um, in particular, the Navy SEALs. And I think part of it is because like, I was in the Navy and I was in San Diego and I had a roommate who wanted to be a Navy SEAL. I'm not sure that guy ever made it, um, but if it was all about bravado, that he probably would make it, you know? But if you don't know anything about the Navy SEALs, I mean, they are um, just the elite of the elite. They're sent into kind of the most dangerous, most difficult of situations. And to kind of weed them out, what makes me so fascinated is the process that they go through to become Navy SEALs. And um, in particular, they go through a week called Hell Week. Have you heard of that? Yeah. So this is where they spend five and a half days basically exercising, running, push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, going out as a team into the water, rolling around on the sand, getting yelled at as much as they can while only getting four hours of sleep. Now, um, that's absolutely amazing. These folks are pushed to their physical limit. And um, I've always been fascinated by Hell Week in particular. And in and of itself, that weeds out a number of potential Navy SEALs because they don't want people falling apart under the most difficult of circumstances. But I read this on Twitter this week from a leadership guru, so it must be true because it was on Twitter, right? So if it's not, I mean, I, I tried to fact check it, but this is what it is. He said, most Navy SEALs, though, they don't wash out on Hell Week. He said, there's actually a couple of weeks later where there's basically an unspecified distance that Navy SEALs are required to run. And he said, lots of the people, they don't have to keep any particular pace. They just have to keep moving. And they said, it usually only lasts about a mile, but the mental toll that it takes, not knowing how far that you actually have to go, actually breaks people, right? Um, people reach their breaking point because they don't know how far they have to go. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about people in our church, right? Um, it would be one thing when trials and difficulty and seasons of suffering came, and if God sent us like a text message and said, for the next 6.75 months, you are going to endure a trial, right? But if you know anything about trials, sometimes um, they can last for days, they can last for weeks, they can last for months, they can last for entire seasons of our lives. And the mental toll that that can take um, can lead us to the breaking point. Right? Not only that, and then not only do we not know how long they last, but oftentimes you 
trials are multifaceted, you know. Um, you, you know, maybe if there was just a trial on a relational front, we could handle it. But it seems like it comes in waves, like Psalm 42 talks about breakers kind of coming around and like just getting slammed to the ground, right? And those are kind of the, the backdrop, and those are the realities kind of going on in David's life as we look at Psalm 27 this morning. Um, He's a man that is undergoing tremendous difficulty. He's facing overwhelming circumstances. And Psalm 27 tells us how do we fight to believe the goodness of God when everything in our life is anything but good, right? How do we fight to believe that he will actually meet us in our circumstances? How do we not get overwhelmed to the breaking point? And David gives us a great worship and theology lesson in Psalm 27. But more than that, and this, is, and this has just been this entire week for me, like I could not be more convinced this morning that God wants not to just declare his goodness over his people. He wants to manifest his goodness. And by manifest, I mean he wants to draw close to you, right? He wants to break down every wall that you have kind of built up in your life that's kind of meant to insulate or isolate you from pain. He wants to come into that space, and he wants to declare his goodness to you, and he wants to meet you where you are. And listen, I know there are a number of people in this room that really are at the breaking point, and I know Jesus wants to minister to you. And you may be here this morning, and you're like, hey, my life is good, okay? So I I want you to also know that this message is for you, because the church of Jesus Christ is not just made up of individual people. It's when one part of the body hurts the, the entire body hurts. And so if, if you're in a good season, this message is for you to fight for and to lift up the hands of your brothers and sisters and to help to, help to remind them of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We're going to spend some time at the conclusion of this message just praying and worshiping and asking God to heal bodies and souls. And we're believing that he wants to do more than we can ask or imagine. We're going to do that as we look at Psalm 27. I'm going to begin by reading verses 7 through 14. You can join with me. You can stand uh, if you're able. We'll draw attention to God's word. Kind of be all throughout this psalm today, but I'm going to start by reading verses 7 through 14. Verse 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious and answer me. You have said... Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And here's the verses we're going to spend the most time on. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Church, hear this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, so much right now we want to see you cause your goodness to pass before us. We want to see your goodness in the land of the living. We need you to meet us where we are. Um, Our minds and our hearts could be in a million different places right now, but I pray that you help us to connect with you where we are in our own stories. I pray that you would minister to each person and minister through each person today. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 27, I would always say, is a well-worn path for me. Psalm 27 is inscribed on the inside of Jen and I's wedding rings. I have gone to it oftentimes over the years. I have preached through it. I have prayed through it, especially in times of darkness and difficulty and uncertainty. And the overwhelming flavor of Psalm 27 is a God that sees and a God that hears and a God that acts and a God that rescues his people. Um, As you take Psalm 27 as a whole, It's meant to fuel a sense of faith and expectancy, right? While not glossing over the real difficulty and the real pain that exists um, in individual stories, right? This isn't a, a kind of naive optimism. This is a kind of faith that's rooted and grounded in who God is. And it's written so that the people of God will not lose heart when they come to the breaking point, like we've already said. God wants his people to be able to cling closely to who he is and his character. Because if we lose perspective of the goodness of God in the land of the living, um, it's very easy to lose heart. So God wants to root us and anchor us in his goodness. So the first main point that we're going to look at this morning is understanding and identifying the gap between what we know to be true about God and our current experience of God. Identifying and understanding the gap between what we know to be true about God and our current experience. This gap is the subject of Psalm 27. If you know David's story at all, I mean, David basically... We went through Psalm 23. He was a shepherd. Um, He was the youngest of eight sons. He basically went through the the pain and the rejection of his family. David kind of speaks of that in verse 10 when he talks about his father and his mother forsaking them. There's a real scar of rejection there. And I'm confident that God wants to speak to people that are bearing that scar of rejection from their families. Um, David was out watching sheep when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the new king of Israel. He was so forgotten by his father that he didn't even bring him to the table, right? Because he was the least likely of all the candidates to be able to be known by God. And um, ultimately, David was anointed king at the age of 15, but this is where the gap comes into play. Um, The problem with David being anointed king was there was already a king sitting on the throne. His name was Saul, if you know the story. And kings in the ancient world did not give up their thrones voluntarily. There's only two ways to become a king. The king either dies or he is assassinated, right? And so David immediately became a threat to Saul. And for the next 15 years, David spent his life 
on the run, living in caves, aware of the promises of God, aware of the really the character and the nature of God, all the while that seemed to be far from his own experience. That's what David is talking about in verses 1 through 3. Why don't you look at it with me? Verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And this is it. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Right? So this is David's story. He was constantly on the run. He was surrounded by his enemies. Saul was seeking to put him death, seeking to put him to death, and he was carrying around in the, the very essence of his soul this scar of rejection from his mother and his father. Have you ever been there? It was in this place that David learned to put his trust and his confidence in the goodness of God. Now, it's easy for me to tell the story of David 15 years, summarized in about two and a half minutes, right? But think about 15 years ago for you, right? George W. Bush was president. The first iPhone came out 15 years ago. I only had three kids. So, I mean, we're talking about this was a long time ago, right? David's anchor in the middle of the gap was the goodness of God. This is what he's speaking of in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So what David used to fill in that gap between his what he knows to be true about God and his own experience is a confidence, not just that he will experience the goodness of God one day far off in the future, but here and now in the land of the living. And that is vital for us as the people of God to kind of be able to endure difficult seasons. The only thing that you can rightfully put in the gap between your own experience and the, what you know to be true about God is his character and his nature. And this is what I know about the gap. The gap is painful, right? The gap is difficult. But the gap is also used by God to bear tremendous fruit in the lives of his people Listen to this from Mark Sayers in his book, A Non-Anxious Present. He says, The most comfortable of environments from a temporal and an earthly perspective are the worst environments for the seed of the kingdom to grow. Hard places are good soil for kingdom seeds. Testing in the hard ground of the wilderness is difficult and uncomfortable, yet it grows us. And this is the promise. Testing also gives us more capacity for God in our lives. By enduring hardship, God is going to make you have a stronger inner temple which can contain more of his presence. That's an amazing promise. So yes, there is this gap, but it is in the gap that you learn to know and experience who God is personally. Right? You don't learn all of the lessons on the mountaintop. Most of the lessons that we learn about who God is is in the valley. And he is powerful enough to sustain us, but also to meet us and 
deliver us. So we all experience this gap. I would invite you to think about where is the gap in your own life between your own experience and what you know to be true about God. It could be a physical ailment, right, that you have endured for years. The gap could be that you know that God both is able and willing to heal, but your story, you have not been healed. It could be the gap in your own sanctification or becoming more like Jesus, where you have prayed and cried out to God to change you, and your own experience is you seem to be stuck. Not only does God want to heal physical bodies, and this is, I mean, this came through in, in every prayer meeting that we, were, we had this morning. God wants to get down to the very core of our souls and root out fear and anxiety and worry. Listen, we are a society that just deals with the symptoms, right? And um, this is, if you need medication, please take medication. But I do believe that, that God doesn't want to just manage our anxiety and our fears and our worries. I do believe he wants to get to the root. And the only thing that can heal the people of God deep down is the goodness and the nearness of God. He wants to draw near to his people. The gap for you may be in parenting. It may be you have sown good seed. And right now it doesn't look like there's good soil and you're waiting for those seeds to bear fruit. And um, man, as a parent and, and just seeing my kids grow up over time, I mean, <laughs> there are so many long seasons where it seems like there is absolutely nothing happening, right? And if anything, there's bad fruit coming up. But there is a day <laughs> when God actually makes kingdom seeds grow. And we have to believe, especially when it's not our own lives and in the lives of our children, that there is going to be a day that they experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. Your gap could be in your finances. You may need real physical um, financial provision. There's a, a difference between what you know to be true about God and his provision and what you're experiencing. The gap, and this is the gap for me, is... The difference between the stories that I read in this book each and every day and our own current experience of who God is, that's the gap, right? The only thing that's meant to go in that gap is the goodness of God in the land of the living. So where is the gap between what you know to be true about God and your own experience? This gap is where God's character is most absolutely trustworthy from beginning to end and can be experienced. So the second part of this message is, is going to be how do we fight to actually see and experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. The truth is that how we respond to this gap makes all the difference. So when our kids were really little, um, Jen and I bought a lot of Ikea furniture. So um, I don't know if that was just because they had free childcare and that gave us like an hour to go shop. That was a brilliant marketing move, I think, for young parents. Also, it was super affordable. Um, but it also, I mean, it tested the metal of our marriage, to be honest. I mean, Jen would often say, like, honey, you have a lot of gifts, but putting things together are not them, you know? But there's times early on in our marriage where I would put together bookshelves because I had tons of books and 
um, there always was like extra parts left over. Like, can I get an amen from anybody? Is there anybody feel that, right? And I thought that was intentional. I thought that was loving by the, you know, the people at Ikea. They're just like, in case you lose a screw or something. But really, I couldn't get all of them in there. And I'm always trying to like force them to go in. And um, there always would be this gap between like, you know, I mean, it would almost be a crooked bookshelf. And I would try to torque down the screw. And ultimately, because it's made out of particle board, it would begin to splinter. Um, but the gap, you know... Um, that's, that's a lot what, like what we do. We understand intellectually that the goodness of God is what's meant to inform our life and our experience. But oftentimes when our circumstances don't line up with, who we know, with what we know to be true about God, we try to fill it in with other things. One of the things that we try to fill it in with is our own religious performance, right? So when you're going through difficulty... Oftentimes, um, you know the problem is not on God's end, right? You know him to be good and sovereign. So you think, well, the problem must be me. He must be rejecting me. And so the, the longer a trial goes on, the louder the voices become that are accusing. That's, there's not only adversaries you know, for David that are outside of him, that are armies encamping him, but there's an adversary um, that is whispering lies and accusations and we all know that adversary but we can try to double down our own performance and our own effort and we can begin to just be paralyzed looking inward for any reason why is not God, God not showing up for me in this particular way and the, the good news is that God's goodness because of the gospel is never dependent on our goodness God always gives his best to us, even when we're at our worst. Tish Harrison Warren, in her book, Prayers for the Night, says this. The, the cross is the only thing that can bring comfort and perspective in the middle of the gap. She says, God loves us passionately and wants to bring us joy and flourishing, but this doesn't preclude a cross. God's love is refracted through the cross, which often makes it hard to see or recognize. But if we are to learn to trust the place and, and to place the weight of our lives on the love of God, we can only learn this through the cross. We come to know and trust God's love more deeply through our own crosses. Let that comfort you. The things that make us feel we cannot go on. The things that make us tired. The job loss, the breakup, the sickness, the loneliness, the long struggle with sin, the estrangement from a friend, the disappointment, the death of those that we love, and even our own death. Right? The only way that we can understand pain and suffering in the world is a God that took on pain and suffering in and of himself so that he can minister life to us even in points where we feel like death has come to visit us. So love is cross-shaped. We learn what love is by looking at the cross. Another thing that we use to try to put in the gap is cynicism, right? This is pretending not to care or not to hope, right? Um, this is a little bit of the, the lie of cynicism is that we believe that if we stop hoping that we actually protect and insulate our hearts from pain. 
But the truth is you cannot selectively numb your own heart, right? If you numb your heart in one area and you try to cut it off from hope in one area, it numbs every area of your life. So you also at the same time cut yourself off from real comfort and real presence that comes from God. So cynicism is a cheap imitation for faith, right? And it is the air that we breathe in 2022. The lie of cynicism says (laughs) you can protect yourself from harm. And I love what David says in verse 1. He says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. A stronghold is a military fortification. He's saying God's goodness is the place where you can go and you can run and you can hide and you can find protection. A stronghold also means like it's useless to try to protect yourself. Right, A stronghold is like, I mean, you can just imagine, I don't know what that would be, like being in a, a medieval castle and somebody trying to shoot an arrow. Like your, your protection is not your own protection. It's, you've got these walls surrounding you. And that's what God wants you to know in the midst of the gap is that he is your stronghold. You don't have to pretend it's okay to let down your guard and yourself protective walls, that we are safe with him, that you can come to him just as you are and know that he will meet you. Psalm 27 is an invitation that God will meet you exactly where you are. And then finally, another thing that we put in the gap, and I think this is the most deadly in church culture, is fatalism, right? This is where you church up disappointment, right? And you're like, God's sovereign, right? And you kind of put on a stoic face and pretend like everything is okay, but deep down you know it's not okay. Now, we absolutely believe that God is sovereign, but there is not one place in Scripture where sovereignty makes God's people passive, right? It makes them cry out all the more. They know that he rules all things and controls all things, so they pray all the more, right? That's the storyline of the Bible. It's not a quiet resignation. I mean... When I think of fatalism, I think of Martha. You know the story in John 11? You've got Mary and Martha. They lose their brother Lazarus. Martha, you know what she says to Jesus? She's like, I know, right? I know that if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I know that you're going to be able to raise him up on the last day. Martha doesn't know, right? I mean, that's just just religious language trying to church up the, the pain and the disappointment of death. Right? Jesus says, you don't know. I am the resurrection. I am the life. You don't have a clue about who I am. Right? But that's what fatalism is. It's this quiet resignation that whatever is going to be is going to be. And this scripture, more than anything, compels us to trust God for his goodness to be manifest in the land of the living. We don't have to quietly stand by. Proverbs says a hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, right? You're not meant to live without hope. Fatalism is a cover-up for unbelief. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, and we're not meant to live by deferring hope over and over. Now, there's a such thing, I don't know if you've ever heard this term called an over-realized eschatology, like prosperity and faith preachers are accused of this. It's basically believing so much in the kingdom of God coming now that God always heals, that he always saves, that he always delivers. I mean, you've heard ideas like that. Name it, claim it, right? Say it, spray it, any of that stuff. Um, 
that's a real temptation, I think. But I would say what's more a temptation, probably in this room, is an underrealized eschatology, right? Not trusting God for enough, right? Not pressing in, not asking for healing, not asking for deliverance, just sitting by with a quiet resignation. I've been reading a, a, an old book by Jack Deere. It's called Surprised by the Voice of God. And in it, he says this. He says, so many of us, and he's talking about how we read the Bible, have been conditioned to read the Bible in terms of our experience rather than in terms of the experience of the people in the Bible. If we don't hear God's voice today in special ways, we assume he doesn't speak in special ways anymore. If we don't see miracles today, we assume he's not doing miracles anymore. Yet in the Bible, it's filled with dreams and visions and miracles and many other supernatural experiences. And this is it. For many Orthodox Christians, the Bible is a book of abstract truth about God rather than a guide to the realm of God's power. The Bible is more than a theological treatise. It is a guide to dynamic encounters with a God who works wonders, right? And so we have to fight, right? You can explain away every miracle in here and you will empty the Bible of its very power to change your life. Right? We have a God that moves and a God that acts and a God that delivers and a God that saves. And the way that he does that, we see in verse 14. And I'm going to close with this. Verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, in the... The world of the Old Testament, they were not about wait, uh, saving some paper, you know? I mean, if they say wait for the Lord twice, I mean, they're doing that, like, to place some emphasis. Like, it really does mean something. And when we think of waiting, we think of waiting in line, you know, at the supermarket, or waiting in line to try to get a parking spot, or waiting in line at the DMV. But in Scripture, waiting is about anticipation, Waiting is about expectation. Waiting is about the one that you are waiting for. So I'll, I'll kind of use this as a kind of a silly illustration. But when my kids were young, uh, believe it or not, they used to fight with one another. Um, and they would self-police. They're like, you wait until dad gets home, right? And you're going to be in big trouble, right? I mean, that was kind of the, the theme of it. They're like, I'm going to tell on you. And the one that they were waiting for, right, they, they assumed that I was going to come and I was going to make everything right. But listen, the one that we're waiting for, right, is, is not dad to get home. The one that we're waiting for is to experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. We're waiting for the self-existent creator of the world who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, who rose Jesus from the dead, who walked on waters, who opened blind eyes, who restored relationships and bodies and souls. That's the one that we're waiting for. We're not waiting for some theological idea. He's far greater than anything that we could ask or imagine. The one that you're waiting for changes how you wait. So my question is, who are you waiting for this morning? God is inviting each and every person to trust him to meet your deepest needs this morning. He's a God who fights and acts on behalf of his people. Right? And it's not just far off in eternity somewhere that, that God's going to be good in eternity. 
But we have to believe for, for endurance sake, but also the fact that he wants to actually deliver his people, that he wants to manifest his goodness here and now. And so we're going to fight to believe that together this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. There's going to be several ways you can respond this morning to God's goodness. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that God wants to heal and save and deliver. Um, We will have people at the front who would love to pray with you. You can stay in your seat and just pray um, as you listen to this band sing the goodness of God in the land of the living over you. Um, You can get up and find someone that's close to that you can share a burden and a concern and it's fine to move around in this place Um, you can stand up and you can worship and you can claim your promise to see the goodness of God in the land of the living Um, any and all of those things are appropriate ways Um, but make no mistake every person has an area where there's a gap And God wants to specifically remind you of his goodness in the gap. So I'm going to pray, and then they're going to um, sing over us. So feel free to respond appropriately. We also will kind of just have the microphone open. If if God's laying a scripture or a thought on your heart and you want to share that, come share it with me and maybe edify the church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning you would manifest your goodness as you have promised to do in the land of the living. I think of the invalid that, that waited for healing for 38 years. Yet there was a day that you came and you brought healing and restoration. But there was a woman that waited for 12 years with an issue of blood and she reached out in faith and she received her miracle. Lord, we don't know when and how our miracle will come, but we do believe as your people that we will experience your goodness in the land of the living. I pray that you break break down the walls of cynicism and fatalism and pain and disappointment and you would come in and that you would heal. I pray for those that are experiencing the scar of rejection from their families that they would know that the Lord takes them in. I pray that you would add them to a family in this very church family. I pray that there would be none lonely or disconnected among your people. We pray that you would cause your goodness to pass before us in a way that we would shout for joy not just a mild reminder that you're good but an overwhelming experience of your goodness it's in Jesus name amen so you can pray you can stand you can come to the front and we're just gonna wait for the goodness of God